Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and it's a beautiful day out there. If you're podcasting, it won't mean anything to you, but hopefully it's beautiful weather when you're listening to us at other times. Uh, Today, we went down to the vigil outside Parliament House for public housing. So we'll hear from some of the people who are sitting out there doggedly uh, putting out the message that public housing is everybody's business and hopefully we'll get an update from the the steps to find out uh, how they're going. Yesterday uh, the police came early in the day and uh, tried to move them along but it didn't happen. They stood their ground or sat their ground and uh, they're still there. So if you want to go down there and just hello, say hello, you don't have to sit there forever. You can go there and just show support. Uh, they'd be very pleased to hear from you and see you there. Before we go to that, we'll give you an important message from 3CR. <laughs> Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I want choices and rights. Choices and rights. Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3 from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on 3CR. And join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> I thought that was good enough, yeah? Excellent, Dan. That's right, good enough. And there, uh, the uh, slogan is Choices and Rights for Disability Day this year. So listen in. Monday, December the 3rd, 7am to 7pm for a fabulous array of uh, programs that will enlighten you, I am absolutely convinced. Uh, In the earlier reports, if you were listening to Stick Together, one of the news items was that uh, Food Bank had had its um, funding cut and uh, just uh, news that the Federal government's been shamed into returning that funding. But as it was pointed out to me, the issue that a private company that, uh, or a company that's uh, run privately that uh, runs Food Bank um, is the big issue that they lost their funding. 
uh, is probably overshadowing the much more outrageous uh, point, which is that so many people in Australia need to use food bank to get food on their tables. That should be the thing that worries you most. But uh, let's move on to uh, the voices of the people that are sitting on the steps. You're out here holding the sign for uh, the uh, uh, Protect Public Housing before the election, the uh, vigil. Why have you come along? Uh, well, I'm probably a long-term listener to 3CR and it so happens that I am also long-term homeless. So I sort of put two and two together and decided uh, it would be something that I should come down to and participate in. Are you, are you pleased that uh, people have made it an issue considering you are homeless at the moment? Yes, I am because it is a public issue and it's up to the public to ascertain what they require when it comes to being able to live socially, cohesively um, when the situation is that it is quite a difficult procedure just to even maintain a roof over your head. Was it money that got you homeless or were other issues? It was money, but not in the way you think. Their um, money problems came from pernicious bank loans, uh, harm from electronic gaming machines, um, and uh, the use of authoritarian methods to put me in a situation that made me actually instantly homeless. So it was really all got to do with uh, economics. Yes, that was by proxy also. Yeah, so so uh, maintaining yourself in a reasonable way when you're homeless is quite difficult, isn't it? It is, and when you are in a position to possibly maintain yourself in a better position, you might be likely to be set upon by authorities unfortunately that um, uh, portend to uh, sympathise and have regulations and rules on how to treat homeless people but actually at the end of the day or in the middle of the night or the beginning of the day most likely you'll be moved on so it's very hard at some point you will be set upon by either an, a, a, an agency or a, or a, a authority of the uh, you know, jurisdiction that you're in or perhaps just some passerby perhaps that may want to set upon you. So it is uh, very difficult to maintain any semblance of... Uh, uh, you know, I don't know, um, semblance of... No, it's, it's sort of like you're a criminal or something. Yeah, and it's also, no you just don't have any, um, you don't have any real safety, you don't have any real security, and although most people that are homeless do present to organisations, but there, it is such a minefield, there are so many organisations involved that it's so difficult to navigate. There is no one-stop shop. You can't go somewhere and sit down with someone and go through it and um, try and ascertain 
um, you know, a best case scenario. You also the Department of Housing. I'm, you know, 50. So the Department of Housing, in my, when I was younger, was more like you just. It was somewhere where you would present, state your case, and you fill the paperwork out and wait accordingly. But now it is just like we're five years behind them. Sorry, there's nothing available. But all the um, catchments for long-term public housing are just um, there's something going wrong there they're either under resourced or um, they can't cope with the demand or they are ill-equipped to uh, service the needs of people that are finding themselves mostly through no fault of their own in dire circumstances where they are put into the most ridiculous situations and dangerous. I mean, I'm led to believe there's 11,000 children currently in Victoria that have presented to homeless services in the last year. So this is really what you're looking at. Also, put it this way, in my opinion, and with the homelessness, you come into the city, you look at people, you think, do you think someone comes into the city and says, I think today, you know, it'd be a good idea. I'll go and buy a sleeping bag and maybe some pillow and then I'll, I'll go and set up, a, 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 you know, a bedroom or so forth in front of a shop front. Now, that is just absurd and ridiculous. You're here, um, sitting out here holding the uh, banner up. Tell me about why you're here. Well, I'm um, uh, a great believer in public housing. It's uh, so important that uh, the corporate... Uh, industry uh, can't even talk about it. So they, uh, they talk about uh, other things that are important, but uh, they don't mention public housing, which is uh, crucial to the behaviour of people and contentment of people. Uh, public housing is being neglected for some reason that absolutely wants to destroy the people's contentment. Unless you're properly housed in some way, um, it, it, you'll have a lot of strife with families within, particularly single mothers and all that type of thing. Older ladies are getting older and uh, they uh, can't afford the on the pension. The pension just allows them to uh, probably pay the $400 a week rent for one bedroom, but uh, that doesn't apply to um, um, all the things that are needed for living, travel and food and things like that. It's quite a, quite a battle in Australia and this is the problem. when. You, Half the population being fed by charity—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, um, it's, 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 it's terrible, really. But um, I live in public housing in Brunswick, and I can honestly say how beautiful their flats are. It's just—it it makes it makes me so pleased that all the adverse publicity and rubbish and lies about public housing being degrading and what have you. This is a wonderful example of the beauty of public housing. And each one of them has got it beautifully outfitted and just simple but clean and lovely. And uh, it's just a privilege to be living there in my old age. You never know what's going to around the corner, but uh, and I'm very pleased to be sitting here with a wonderful man, Joe Toscano, who is uh, one out of the box. He's um, probably the best politician in Victoria and could be Australia. He's so good that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's two things. I've got lovely housing and I've got a good man running the show here.
for public housing. Tell me why you're here today. <laughs> I just think public housing is incredibly important. I'm 74 years old, which means that when I was younger, public housing was something they were still building. It was considered a necessity, a bit of the infrastructure like everything else. And I find it totally disgusting that it hasn't been kept up, that they've, that they've stopped building it and stopped spot port purchase. And it's now become mainly just for people with major problems, whereas before it was for anybody on a low income who needed it, who couldn't afford to buy a house. I mean, I know it's all part of the same thing, the privatisation thing, and the government trying to hand, hand all its responsibilities over to the private se sector. I don't think community housing is any different. It's a problem for, the, the, for homeless people. I lived at the Gatwick Private Hotel for years, and one of the things I saw was a lot of people who were in and out of the Gat or who were living in the street near the Gat, and they had their names down for years for community housing. And every time a vacancy came up, they wouldn't be accepted because, they, because these people cherry pick. They don't want the people with problems. And to get into it, you had to be able to prove you could pay the rent and you don't have too many That's hassles. right. And you actually have to be earning a certain amount of money a year, like $25,000 a year. So what happens to unemployed? Or anybody on a pension? So it is a real problem and it doesn't help the homeless in the street. I'm also particularly concerned that money's being given to groups uh, who are into short-term solutions. I was just reading the article the other day about the Salvation Army and their coffee shop sleep out, which sounds good, but it would be so much better if that money and if their campaigns were towards getting public housing going and seeing that people could um, be in it. I'm very concerned about the um, handover and sell-off of um, housing, public housing estates. Um, you hear that there's going to be 10% more accommodation, but really that 10% um, adds up to fewer beds. Um, they say that everybody can apply to come back, but obviously families can't if there's not three and four bedroom houses. But apart from that, that accommodation is going to be taken up so quickly, particularly where I am in the city of Port Phillip, where all the old rooming houses are being changed into units, which means that there's going to be a whole load of... Um, people needing houses so it probably won't be anybody that's already on the public housing waiting list and a concern about women the regal is going to become for women only and i'm concerned that they will put a whole load of domestic violence victims there in the one place which is not a good idea i'm very concerned that um, none of the other major parties have anything that i would even consider to be a public housing um, or even a really a housing policy. Last year I was at a rally and there was somebody there from um, the Liberal Party and he was talking about their public housing policy. And all they were talking about really was a policy to um, house some domestic violence victims, again probably all in the one place. Nothing against the getting housing but there should be um, 
That's it's not what, a coherent policy in public housing. It's, it's, it's not a housing policy. No, it's no, a it's a reaction to domestic violence. So why have you come out here today to be part of this? Um, I came out because I feel that housing is an issue that affects all of us. We're all just one step away from being homeless. I myself am homeless, have been for a year. Um, and yeah, it's it's important. Um, we weren't uh, we didn't ask to be born, and it's our right as a human being, a fundamental right to have a safe place where we can lay our head, where we're free to express ourselves and just to be, you know, protected. At, no matter how much money we earn or whether we, you know, are physically challenged or have whatever challenges we face in our lives, um, everybody has the right to be housed. And so public housing is an integral part, even as slightly pathetic as it is, with the waiting list between 15 and 20 years is I haven't even bothered to go on the waiting list. Um, I'm here to break the silence uh, surrounding public housing. I'm, I don't want public housing to be socialised, to be privatised and I'm honoured to be protesting with the people who are here. We've got approximately uh, nine people here at the moment and I'm guessing that over the three days that we've been here, we've had possibly 50 to 100 people passing through, um, as well as uh, people driving past in their cars, honking their horn, and other people encouraging us to keep going. Um, we also had a woman come by this morning who grabbed a whole heap of uh, flyers to hand out to people because she had been housed in a filthy rooming house to flee from domestic violence and uh, yeah, knew what public housing was and what the difference between social community and public housing is. And uh, who else have we had? Uh, there have been a number of people who are homeless uh, come and join us as well. and. Uh, uh, I want to raise awareness uh, that public housing is not just an issue for people uh, experiencing domestic violence or people who are homeless. It's actually an issue that's going to affect everyone as well as affordab housing affordability and rent prices. So some young people have been interested in our protest as well and have thought that uh, using stamp duty revenue to provide public housing is a good idea. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Joe, you're on the line. Are you there? Yes, I am. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yep. So uh, we're now at uh, the Parliament steps. Joe's out there. How's it, how was it last night? Well, it was quite uh, reasonably pleasant. Uh, we had um, we had a stand we had a standoff with uh, uh, police uh, yesterday, but everything settled down now, and uh, we're still uh, here. The uh, what I call of us as the uh, the real government of Victoria has possessions in the nine tenths of the law, and we're on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. Um, the 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 the, no. the, uh, the, um, the issue with the police or the PSOs was that you were sitting on the top of the lower steps. 
Yeah, but that's all been resolved and we've got good relationships at the minute. So uh, I think we'll be able to do the uh, 10 days. This is uh, day four beginning today. We've been here since uh, Wednesday, 9 o'clock. Uh, it's a two-pronged two campaign which is for public housing in support of public housing, which uses direct action, which is the 10-day uh, vigil we have in here on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. And um, people are sleeping with us overnight and holding the banner. And uh, we hope to, I'm looking at the banner now, and we ho hope to hold the banner for the next uh, up the next ten days. And uh, obviously, we need more people here to help us. And on the banner is uh, public housing is everybody's business. Our one million Victorians in public housing by 2029 use Victoria's stamp duty revenue, six billion dollars plus per year, for public housing. It's a simple campaign. Uh, we could house one-fifth of the Victorian population in public housing within 10 years if we use a tax which is levied on people who buy home, we quarantine that tax for public housing. Now, that has profound implications for the community. It reduces rents because it increases competition between the public housing sector and the private marketplace. It will uh, obviously uh, help to reduce uh, homelessness greatly. It will ensure that people who can't afford to get into the marketplace but have got jobs, low-paying jobs, will be able to have secure, stable accommodation of 25% of their income for themselves and their uh, children and uh, partners, you know, for, uh, for eternity. It also means uh, improved uh, security. Because one thing you noticed uh, about being here in the top end of uh, Burke Street, at the steps of Parliament House, is the number of homeless people that are uh, uh, trying to survive. So obviously, it'll increase community security. And um, most importantly of all, it actually is very good for business because what it does, it frees up people's income uh, to use in the econ you know, in a normal day-to-day -day economic uh, uh, transaction. Because if, you know, if, you, if your rent is limited to 25% of your income, and most people now in low incomes are paying between 30 to 60% of their income for, for rent or, uh, you know, all over the place, or even for a mortgage, you can pay up to 40, 50% of your income for a mortgage. It means that there's all these billions of dollars which are released into the community, which improves um, business activity, improves profitability. So it's a very simple concept. Now, we also... I'm also standing as an independent candidate in Martin Foley's seat of Albert Park, just to uh, let them know there is a political price to pay for the Australian Labor Party pursuing a policy which has pauperised a lot of people and limited their uh, options and, their, more importantly, their uh, children's options for so long. And you'd expect the Victorian Labor Party would have supported the concept of public housing, not try to uh, privatise it by stealth, by transferring ownership to the community and uh, social housing sector, which is basically private organisations, many of them religiously based, which now make billions of dollars, you know, from the so-called welfare industry. So it's a simple campaign. What, what what's the significance of Martin Foley? Remind people. He's the Minister for Housing. Uh, it was It's his policy. He has driven this policy through Cabinet. It's the information we have. It's his baby. He believes that if we transfer ownership to the community and social housing sector, that uh, housing stocks will increase without the government actually having to use revenue. So it is his policy. He's the housing minister. is in... He's, he's, implement, he's implementing this policy over the last four years. And if uh, the government is elected in its own right, with Mr Martin Foley as uh, 
the housing minister, it will be implemented by the end of the next four years. Now, so this is the one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to put the spokes uh, in their wheels. Now, this uh, move towards uh, privatising public housing, because we're talking about uh, genuine public assets here. Uh, That's right. Giving, give, and it's been shown that uh, over time that when they do and have in the past handed over public land to private developers, that uh, they do it for a song. Uh, uh, they're not actually working in the best interests of the Australian uh, Victorian community, in a sense. Well, they're not. They're not. And uh, we know that because what we've seen over the last... Uh, uh, over the last uh, 20 years in the state and the last 40 years in the uh, in Australia as a whole, then when you privatise a sector of the economy, whether it's the financial sector and the banking sector, whether it's uh, airports, whether it's telecommunications, what happens is that the private sector that has a monopoly on that sector of the economy, three or four large corporations uh, grow as a result of that privatisation that we're seeing now in the nursing care industry and the private health care industry and the uh, preschool and uh, private uh, education sector. Uh, you've basically got an unofficial cartel. Uh, profits are elevated over the last 40 years. The amount of put in a dollar which is returned to the people who, who create the wealth, the workers, has decreased from 60 cents, 66 cents in a dollar to 33 cents in a dollar. And the Banking Royal Commission and the Royal Commission into the nursing home sector is a salient reminder of what happens when you allow the private corporations and the private sector to nominate a field of economic activity, especially when it provides an essential service. Now, the, the, the other thing is that uh, one of the things that you maintain and uh, talk to this issue, that public housing is everybody's issue. That's right. Public housing at the top line of the banner. This is a four and a half meter, five meter banner with five poles. Public housing, everybody's business. A strong public housing sector decreases rents, uh, so people who are renting and people who can't afford to rent can get into the market. Uh, investors uh, flee the rental market. Housing prices at the lower end of the market drop. This allows young people to enter the housing market and get a mortgage for the next you know, 25 to 30 years of their lives. At least they've got some secure housing. Uh, it also uh, increases security. All this uh, kerfuffle about law and order, which is the manufactured kerfuffle, and to, to a greater extent. Well, law and order improves because you get social cohesion because you haven't got people who've got major uh, psychiatric or psychological issues who are homeless uh, and people who are disaffected and uh, who feel that they're not part of society, you know, lashing out. So public order improves. And as I said before, if uh, you've got a large public housing sector, it actually improves the economy and especially improves the fate of small business because small business in this country and in Victoria, what we've seen is the corporatisation of various areas of small business. When you look at the, you know, the big, uh, you know, the big uh, food uh, places where you buy food, uh, the uh, corporatisation of the fast food industry, the corporatisation of hardware, the corporatisation of the of the pet food industry or the pet industry, and uh, you find that... Um, and then wages will also improve uh, in, in the long run. So that's why it's everybody's business. And even for investors, and that's 88% of Australians who own a second home and uh, make a profit through negative theory, if their lives improve because community 
security and community harmony improve. And uh, what we're seeing in Australia today and in Victoria is the disconnect between different sects in society, which actually leads to friction and violence and despair and increased anxiety and increased psychological issues, uh, which is then, you know, transmitted to, to young children. You know, the latest survey has shown that four out of ten young children have, have uh, major anxiety. 25% of Australians currently are on some type of uh, antidepressive treatment, if not medication. So we do have issues. And what's happened is a lot of people internalise these issues as, as a personal issue. It, it's a personal problem. People look at somebody who's homeless and they say, well, he or she has got issues. That's why they're homeless. But there are structural elements to homelessness and structural elements to psychological despair, and that's related to the destruction of community cohesion. And public housing increases community cohesion and increases the, uh, the satisfaction of uh, a huge number of people who are now currently being denied access to the Commonwealth. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, because... Uh there's this uh, idea that, um, uh, and it, this public housing issue in particular, and your demonstration on the Parliament steps, is a perfect example of how uh, all around us people are moving along the streets, doing their stuff, thinking that uh, this is the only way things can be, that everything's right. in control, and every, this That's is the right. only, and that they have no responsibility or any part in making uh, the neoliberal uh, juggernaut, uh, bringing it to a stop. Uh, this is what your uh, campaign's about, isn't it, sitting on the steps there? Well, it is. It is, it is, it is the real... Uh, it's, it's the real consequences of uh, the implementation of a corporatisation, uh, globalisation, privatisation, deregulation agenda, which is the neoliberal agenda. It is the human face of that. And what we are seeing is government seems to be not incapable, unwilling to address these factors. They've made a mistake. We've allowed them as a community to run down that path because we think that we're all going to become rich. It doesn't happen that way. And whether it's uh, China, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Australia, when you've got neoliberalism, uh, you know, rearing its ugly head and dominating every aspect of uh, human endeavour, whether it's culture, whether it's the economy, whether it's social interaction whether it's the uh, mass media or communication or, or the World Wide Web, then these are the con consequences of that. Now, a lot of people think that public housing is some type of, uh, you know, socialist, communist plot. Well, the reality is that 80% of people in Singapore live in public housing, 60% of people in Austria live in public housing, about 36% of people in Germany live in public housing, significant numbers in France live in public housing. These are all modern Western capitalist economies which have not allowed every facet of their economy to be dominated by neoliberal philosophy. And that's what's happening in Australia. We have followed the American and the English example, and we have allowed every single facet. And that's why it's so important that people come here, sit with us, whether it's an hour or half an hour, or sleep with us tonight, or if they got time, they can go down to the Albert Park electorate and assist me with our campaign down there to hand out uh, how to uh, hand out material about this campaign. And what we're trying to do is be a little bit more sophisticated than most normal campaigns. We're uh, integrating direct action with parliament, extra-parliamentary action with uh, parliamentary action in the same campaign over a period of time, not at one afternoon rally or a few hours with a few public speakers.
And what's been gratified is the almost universal support that we've received on the steps of our Parliament House over the last three days. It's been quite extraordinary. Yesterday, I had a group of fundamentalists fundamentalist Christians who came across and blessed all of us for our campaign. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know, no, public cool. housing housing's an issue for them. Yeah. You know, it's an issue for everybody. It's about what your religion is. I mean, people poo-hoo, but they came, they blessed us, they supported our campaign, they moved on. They'll come back another day, and that's what we want. We want a, a broad campaign for the idea of public housing. That's what we want, that broad campaign that integrates everybody, not just People like listeners to 3CR, but uh, it integrates the homeless, integrates the middle classes, it integrates, it integrates the bourgeoisie, because ultimately a strong public housing sector does have significant benefits for the whole community. Thanks for talking to us, Joe. Well, can I encourage your three listeners to come up sometime during the weekend or during the next week? Yeah, yeah, go we'll for be it. Here. We'll be here till midnight. Uh, the 24th of November. By that time, we'll know whether there's a hung parliament. The only future for public housing is a hung parliament. The Victorian Greens and, the, and, and obviously the Socialists, whose only hope would be possibly another house seat, one upper house seat, are the two uh, political groups that are pushing for public housing as part of their political agenda. The ALP and the uh, Liberal National Party basically want to continue this neoliberal nightmare. And it's time that... Now, all these decent people in the Labor Party who are members of the Labor Party put a bit of pressure on their party. Stop just, you know, putting up their hands every time there's some vote that for more neoliberal, uh, neoliberal reforms, whether it's the uh, privatisation of the Port of Melbourne, the privatisation of the Titles Office, you know, the uh, semi-privatisation of many of the public hospitals in this state. It's time they just put up their hands and said enough is enough to their executive and their leadership and said, we want to go back to traditional Labor values with the Australian Labor Party, supposedly looks after people who earn their living by earning wages. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity. For to, uh... 10 days in November, Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately $6 billion plus per year for public housing, house one million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments, and most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. And we're back. And in the studio, we've got Tilly. G'day, Tilly. How are you? Good. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, good to see you. Uh, we changed the uh, programming, but you haven't seen because uh, I thought we'd better go down to the Parliament steps and check out the uh, people who are sitting there for public housing. And so we've just been listening to some voices of people who are sitting there and why they're there. And uh, Joe Toscano, who has been leading the pack, uh, gave us a, a lowdown on. Uh, what the night was like and uh, how things are going. So we're going to move on to uh, something that someone gave me from Refugee Radio, Susie from Refugee Radio. 
she uh, went out to uh, Belgrave. Belgrave, they've got, uh, and this is a phenomenon that uh, actually, this is a bit of a phenomenon around the place. Uh, there's a group of people who uh, go every uh, Saturday morning and uh, uh, protest or uh, raise awareness around uh, refugees and children in detention. And uh, they uh, set themselves up on the um, roundabout down in, um, up in uh, Belgrave. And uh, she decided that she'd go and ask them why they're there. Uh, and when I say it's a phenomenon, uh, what I discover is that people are doing it in Bendigo and they're doing it in other places around. Uh, it's this uh, concept of direct action, uh, raising, you're not doing it, you know, whatever the policy is, you're not doing it in my name, uh, what they want people to realise. And it's an extension of uh, the uh, interview we, you got us uh, a, a week or so ago about uh, grandmothers... Uh, for refugees. So it's more direct action. It's more people in the community just getting involved and wanting to put their voice out. Yeah, yeah, which is quite fascinating. So uh, this is uh, what uh, Susie uh, got from the people who go there on Saturday morning and they'll be there now, probably. So I'm here at the roundabout in Belgrave because there's a group of ladies stand here with a big sign saying Honk for Humanity and they're here every week and have been for a year. And... I thought it would be interesting to find out who they are and why they're here. Hello. Can you tell me your name, please? My name's Christine. And what are you doing here, Christine? I'm trying to help get free the refugees from Nauru with my other grandmothers in purple. And we do it every Saturday from 10 till... Sorry, 11 till 12 in Belgrave and other things. I'm going to an event tomorrow... Um, in the Medibank Marathon to raise funds for the refugees, walking 3Ks. That's fantastic, yes. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Are you part of an organisation then? I'm part of the Grandmothers Against Detention, um, Against Refugees in Detention, and we have meetings and we go to MPs, local politicians, and just try everybody to get support. That's fantastic. And I notice you've got a sign saying, free the refugees, bring them here. So they've been there a long time, haven't they? Oh, yes, five years, too long. And we want them out by November for the International Children's Day. Thank you so much. Hello. Um, Can you tell me your name, please? My name's Prue. And can you tell me a little bit about yourself, Prue? I live in Belgrave, hence I'm standing here on the roundabout at Belgrave. I am a retired social worker. I feel really very passionate about our government's responses to the situation on Manus Island and Nauru and in Indonesia potentially because there are several several thousand refugees still like, still stuck on Indonesia with nowhere to go. Uh, a lot of the refugees, most of the refugees on Manus and Nauru have been found to be refugees. They've been assessed and they are refugees and uh, it's a dire situation now that Medicine Sans Frontier have been told to leave Nauru. It's left, it's left the people on Nauru without really any, any health service. Well, there's IHMS, but they don't actually... Their service is, not, is inadequate, to say the very least. Medicine Sans Frontier were filling in the gaps in terms of mental health for all those families and children that are on Nauru 
and they've now gone this week. The Nauru government has told them to go. The Nauru government has uh, a vested interest in keeping uh, the families and children on Nauru because they're paid by the Australian government, and so they have no other. Uh, they have, don't have anything that actually. There's no GDP. I don't. Uh, GDP is that the right word? There's no. There's no income for the for this small island nation. It used to be phosphate. That's all gone, and so now they. Well, they seem to rely on the Australian government's payments for the refugees. They definitely have a vested interest. So they're in dire straits. The people on Nauru now, as are the people on Manus Island. So I'm in several organisations, and there are, I get lots of information. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for chatting to us, and thank you for being here every week. Hello. Can you tell me your name, please, and a little bit about you? I'm Virginia, and I've got a background in law and sociology. Uh, and I live in Mount Dandenong. I've been a co-convener of Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children, Latrobe, which is now Latrobe Casey, uh, for about two and a half years. And we've been working in that time in, in our local communities uh, to try and do everything possible uh, to get the children uh, off uh, Nauru, and, and all children out of detention, but particularly and particularly now with the campaign of kids off Nauru uh, we're very very working very hard to try and uh, ensure that the message gets across to members of, of parliament gets the message to gets across to our local communities that this is what simply has to happen uh, by the 20th of November it's um, recent events have shown with medicine and frontier, uh, just how diabolical um, the situation is on, on Nauru and how only worse it can get with the uh, indefinite nature of the detention and the lack of hope uh, for the people, uh, the children and the families uh, there. It's obvious um, that the United States has refused to take a number of people on Nauru and Manus and their lives have just been completely... They were bad enough beforehand, but they've been completely thwarted by what's, uh, what's happened to them over time. And I understand that at least 12 people have died on these ter- islands. Absolutely. And unfortunately, if the reports uh, provided by Medicine Saint Frontier are accurate, which I'm sure they are, that this, these numbers are going to increase exponentially, uh, particularly. It's particularly horrifying to think that children, very young children, are contemplating suicide. It is indeed. And you can hear all the hoots in the background. There's a lot of support by all the locals in Belgrave and the Dandenong Ranges for this group of mothers and grandmothers who've been out here week in, week out for the last year. Hello. Hello. What's your name, please? Judy Taylor. I'm a mother and a grandmother, and I heard about the Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children about four years ago, and I've been active in it ever since. We are just appalled at the treatment that innocent children are receiving at the hands of you know, consecutive Australian government. And this latest decision by the Nauru government to deport the Doctors Without Borders has, has left me absolutely... I, I can, cannot believe it. It's just so disgusting. It's heartrending. I can see you're very upset about it and I feel exactly the same way. Apparently there's just one psychiatrist on the island now for all these people, hundreds of people. It's disgraceful. It's utterly disgraceful. And I, I fear that we will see so many more instances of self-harm. And I'm hearing that there's already been 
12 deaths, mostly from suicide and a lot of self-harm incidents, scores, too many to mention. Hello, and can you tell me your name, please? Oh, hi, I'm Erica. Um, I'm from Tacoma, but I'm here at um, the Belgrave Roundabout, which has become quite famous now for, um, for the protest that is being held every Saturday morning between 11 and 12. And this is mainly the grandmothers against the detention of children on Nauru, but others join in, and we're very, very concerned about the situation in Nauru and Manus and trying to do our best to raise awareness amongst the ordinary population about the situation and hoping that something will change for the better for these people. Thank Thank you you ever so much. Hello. Now, can you tell me your name, please? I'm Margaret Sinclair. Pleased to meet you, Margaret. And I see you're holding the big sign, Honk for Humanity and Decency, and the honks have been very consistent in the time that I've been here. Can you tell us Uh a little bit about... The whole story, please. I know it's a lot to cover. It is a lot to cover. So over the past five, over five years, we've had people sent to Manus and Nauru, and every single one of them may, may have started off well, but they're all terribly sick now. And it's not just physically, it's mentally as well. So I'm part of the Refugee Action Collective, as well as um, doing a lot of volunteer work with Doctors for Refugees on the admin side. And I've seen a lot of medical medical records and um, heard a lot of different people's stories and everyone is suffering and I don't think anyone can save lives by by making them suffer. I think that the policy needs to be changed and the laws need to be changed and there needs to be some accountability and for everyone in Australia to know exactly what's been going on. Yes, so my understanding is that these people who are confirmed refugees have been held there indefinitely because they dared to come to Australia by boat and some people are saying it's illegal to come by boat to Australia. What's your response to that? I think if everyone was to look up the Australian Parliament House website on facts for refugees, it says that it's not illegal to come by boat and that there should be no discrimination based on mode of arrival. So the government's actually acting against what what the Australian Parliament House has stated on its um, facts bulletin. I think that... uh, Regardless of how someone has arrived, it's about the situation that they've escaped from that should be considered. Everyone is a a refugee who has escaped war, persecution, torture and has a genuine fear for their lives and their safety and the lives and safety of their families. I think we have the capacity to help them and we should. Thank you. Just one other thing as well. Some people will say that these people are jumping queues. Can you tell me about this big queue that they're all jumping, please? Well, interestingly enough, on the same Parliament House website, this it says there is no queue. So that's just, I think, government propaganda that's been echoed by some very negative people in the community that there is a queue, but there's no queue. They haven't jumped anything, they're here legally and we have a responsibility to do the right thing by them. Okay, well thank you ever so much and I'm very pleased that you have the resilience to come out here week in and week out. I've noticed that there's very few negative responses from the passers-by. There's a lot of waves that we're not hearing, people waving as they drive past. Thank you, Margaret. Bye-bye. Thank Present and we're so hyper aware. 
insufficiency of faith, but trying hard to care. But evolution now has led to such great stagnancy. Killing revolution to preserve hegemony.
Well, a not-so-subtle change in the past week or so. OK, Lord Rupert hasn't relaxed his Dan pejorative mission, but like US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, he has come up with a new enemy of the state. Not the fake news outlets, because Lord Rupert would never publish fake news. Well, confirmed by the fact that in the US, Donald acknowledges that Lord Rupert is just about the only filthy rich of the filthy rich responsible media community values watchdogs who doesn't peddle fake news. That in non-fake news, the sky's the limit, so to speak. But I've diverted wildly. A new enemy of the state here. Well, a few clues. Headlines in the past week or so, exclusive candidate quits over shoplifting and drug-taking boasts and six slurs on Facebook. First election scandal, then all over front page, caught green-handed. Guess what colour the green's in? Labour-hating green, now an ALP candidate. Green rappers passed, and the balance report under that. See if you can work out where this is going. A foul-mouthed Greens candidate vying for state parliament. Well, need we go on? Thank goodness we've got Lord Rupert to warn us over all this. Then the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big Canberra supremo back in those dark ages. Spray for growing greens. The Greens are the uh, true extremists of true blue Aussie politics. Oh, if only, listener. And that's what uh, worries me about the possibility of having a Green Labor government because, in the end, the extremists in those alliances uh, always have their way. Uh, They really do. Well, he'd know from experience his government was a perfect example of that. And good to see he's obviously learned, albeit a bit late. Then yesterday, major parties launch attack on Greens. An opposite page, popular Labour figure Anthony Albanese has launched a passionate plea to voters to return a government minister in a stinging attack on the Greens. In other words, and just maybe we did pick up a theme here, Lord Rupert knows the Greens are so extreme that they're even worse than the pejorative Dan and the Socialists, as if we've learned over, which we've learned over four years, anyone could be. Unlike the court green-handed P1, a caring business class candidate sprung for anti-Islamic rants and forced to quit, although she'll be on the ballot paper, made it on to left-handed P10. Well, we can't say Lord Rupert didn't report it. And last Saturday, a Greens-dominated inner-city council is under fire for hosting a festive secular season event featuring people singing carols against coal. Carols like, we wish you a coal-free future, and oh, come all ye miners. A disgrace. And then down, down in this important report where the under-fire came from. That other overseer of our values, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs. It is miserable to suck the fun out of Christmas and replace it with cringe-worthy propaganda. The so-called Harmony for Humanity Choir is like the Grinch that stole Christmas. So, converting carols for your own use is sucking the fun out of. Therefore, uh... 
still waiting for Lord Rupert and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs to give us their sucking the fun out of view of this ubiquitous ad for one of the big two supermarkets, which uses a well-known carol, but changes the words to tell us we can only enjoy Christmas if we feed ourselves at its exorbitant over-the-top prices. Apparently that's a proper use, injecting the fun into Christmas. Well, certainly into the shareholders' Christmases. In the satire can't compete, why bother saying it, Department, this carry-on about an Indonesia in other people's business free trade for the filthy rich agreement versus true blue Aussie policy read the capital of Zion, leading our big supremo scuttle them more lash son to state categorically, looking very sincere and concerned, true blue Aussie must not allow other countries to determine our foreign policy. Now, listener, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. Why bother stating the obvious? Come up with the obvious line, and what's satirical about the obvious? Because Scuttle then, when he announced the policy a few days before a particular by-election in an electorate with a particular demography, assured us there was absolutely no connection whatever between changing our position on the capital of Zion and the particular by-election in an electorate with a particular demography. And Scuttle them is our big supremo, and big supremos always tell the truth. And not just our big supremo, but a dedicated follower of the dear baby Jesus. So scuttle them would never not tell the truth, leaving only the most cynical, and we certainly don't fit into that department, listener, would believe there just might have been some loose connection like a direct relationship between the particular electorate and the particular policy. And given we must not allow other countries to determine our foreign policy, no connection whatever with the decision of our very, very, very close friend, the US of, just coincidentally announcing the same policy. Oh, there, I said the obvious, didn't I? Sorry, just couldn't help myself. No connection which would make make our very, very, very close friend, the US of and True Blue Aussie, as pretty much the only countries with this policy, if the policy scuttled them announced is the policy, because now we learn the policy we, we announced isn't the policy, which incidentally worked a treat in that particular electorate to which it was totally unrelated. Isn't the policy, but is up for review by someone or someones or other, and Scuttle then will announce the result of that review when the dust settles on not allowing Indonesia in to determine our foreign policy, and we can safely make our own decision with no pressure applied by the free trade for the filthy rich agreement. And anyone who likes a bet would love to get odds on which way that's going to go. We can imagine that someone or someone's reviewing it will spend hour after hour weighing up the pros and cons. It's a day of something or others. Notice these experts in whatever they're experts in plan to celebrate World Measurement Day, a great international celebration we just can't wait for, by changing something or other. You, you can see I'm right up on top of this one. Changing something or other to measure a kilogram, which is based on this lump of something or other in Paris, which they've, that's the experts in whatever they're experts in, they've discovered has lost a bit of weight over the years, bit of diet change and exercise apparently, and producers of all goods measured in kilograms have explained, this explains why they've been dudding people for years. 
No, no, we're not dudding anyone. We're just basing our measurements on that slimming, dieting lump of whatever in Paris. Federally, the Greens are just as dangerous as they are here in Victoria. They've promised to back evil unions calling for industry-wide bargaining rights. As the Troubadour Aussie Capitalist Review commented, putting pressure on the Socialist Party to broaden its support for the controversial reform. Let's hope, for the good of all of us, for the good of the greatest little economic order of them all, the Socialists reject this wedging, because wages are out of control. Same page Thursday, wage growth clocked in at its fastest since 2015. The economy experienced wage growth of 0.6% in the September quarter. 0.6%. Any wonders workers are whooping it up. Like those independent contractors enjoying the fees they charged food or a, food or a starve, forced to close down and head back to Germany, coincidentally, just a couple of days before the tax office declared all these independent businesses charging their exorbitant fees were, wait for it, workers, employees who should have received wages and conditions like holidays and sick leave and superannuation and on and on. And worse, it's estimated food or starve owes these workers seven and a half million, real figure. How selfish of these workers forcing the company, providing them with a job and filling in their time to flee the country, taking the seven and a half mil with them. Okay, we can go, the directors are here, you say. Well, small problem there. Only one director was resident in Trubler, was he? A 23-year-old accountant, and she's also been forced to head for Germany, the home country of this fine company. Also because of these selfish, selfish workers. Thankfully, the public purse can pick up a bit of the debts, but when Fedora staff has global revenue of only $1.2 billion, well, we can't expect them to pick up the bill. Although they're fleeing, the country would indicate they'd love to if they only could. Finally, these, of course, are the very lazy, avaricious workers our Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil, tells us are double-dipping and ripping off their poor, caring employers like Fedora staff. Left to staff, but thankfully, the Fedora staff caring employers, employers run no risk of starving over in Germany. It's not all bad news. Good morning. You're listening to FreeCR. 855 AM, the voice of the community. You are too, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast, and you've got uh, Annie Tilly, and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. How are you, Humphrey? I'm very well. Uh, very, a lot of the stuff that uh, uh, Kevin was talking about in regards to deliver uh, Deliveroo uh, is very similar to wage, slave, wage slaves and chattel slaves, which is what you want to talk about. <laughs> Indeed it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been talking over, over the last few years about the, you know, the, the economic collapse. Um, and from a point of view of a Marxist, of course, we think of this as, as analysing things in a historical way. Whereas bourgeois historians think, oh, no, history is something that perhaps, well, it doesn't really, you know, it sort of ended 200 years ago. And the hardest thing for them to do is to look at the present world in a historical sense. And that's one of the great advantages that Marx offers us. And 
So while we're going to go back 200 years today to look at the early 19th century, it's still part of a historical analysis of the capitalist system because we have the dynamics as to what drives it. And as you say, important parts of that are chattel slavery and wage slavery. So while we're shifting time zones, we're not really shifting the kinds of analysis that we're going to do. But we're going to go back to the free settlement, the free province of South Australia. And and it's part of a series called Fictional Foundational... Fictional Foundations, yes. yes. I mean, I was asked to go over and give a talk about, you know, South Australia, um, and I wanted to go over there for political reasons, and they were going to pay, and I thought, <laughs> well, well, the big fiction is that I know anything about South Australia. That was the first one. And I thought, oh, well, I can, I can do something there. And what I decided to do was to ask the question... Was South Australia a capitalist economy and society from the 28th of December 1836 when they, you know, when they turn up? Um, and I thought, yeah, I can do that. And, you, know, and I, you know, that's what I've been basically working on for the last 20 years, you know, not 20 years, the last 10 years also about when did capitalism come into the world? So because I I what you're just... talking about is that the South Australians like to think that they were... Unbesmirched. No convicts. Yes. No convicts. We're all free in South Australia. Um, and so I just, you know, I started out on that. And, I mean, you know, I don't want to go, you know, sort of give you, for people who aren't brought up in South Australian history, but they set up like a, a private committee, a private company, to come out and to settle the place. And one of the financial backers and big drivers in that was a man called George Fife Angus. And, you know, there are places over South Australia called after him Angus Town, and you can buy Angus Town wines and things. So people probably, even if they don't know much about South Australia, would at least have heard of him. But he was the big driver behind all of that in England. And now... What struck me about him was, you know, I mean, it's an indication of how slow you can be. I mean, I've been stressing for a long time now that you can't explain the arrival of capitalism. I mean, this is not original. I'm taking this from a wonderful West Indian Marxist called Eric Williams, who wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery in the 1940s. Um, And he just, you know, points out that it isn't so much the slave trade. You couldn't have built capitalism out of the profits, out of the trade itself. It was the trades that the slave labour allowed, sugar and tobacco and cotton and all of those things. So no slavery, no capitalism. So this I knew. What I hadn't done until the very last minute almost, Angus, his family, they made their money out of making furniture. And in the early 19th century, good furniture was made out of mahogany. And you got mahogany out of the forests of, Hond- of, of Honduras. So and what is I- mahogany? Pardon? What is mahogany? Oh, it's a very special kind of wood. I mean, in, you know, in the old days, before there were veneers, I mean, it's a kind of colour now because they use it as veneer to put on furniture. But in the old days, you know, furniture was solid wood. Um, and, you know, this was very high quality, you know, um, timber that would go into furniture. So, and this had to come from the West Indies. And I kind of knew that. And it took me you know, forever. To, for the penny to drop 
and to say, how did they get it? That's right. You know, and I thought, as soon as I asked the question, I thought, well, there's only one way, and that was you use chattel slaves. Which is interesting that it took you so long because it's a bit like this new thing where they uh, have uh, labour hire companies to, you know, universities will have, uh, uh, you know, outsourced or labour hire so that they don't have to besmirch their lily-white hands. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, it's, you know, so anyway, finally I did get there. I mean, I have to say that, that, you know, there have been historians for decades burrowing into the history of South Australia full-time I mean, I was just a drop-in, um, and collectively they hadn't got to this point. And I said, well, let me go and look at just a bit more about George Five Angus and the background of this. But it didn't occur to me even then that he may have owned slaves. I thought what he was doing was using somebody else's slaves to go into the jungle, get the timber, and bring it down to the port, and they'd buy it. And, and buy the and, product. Yeah, and then they'd send it off. Well, a couple of other things you know, happened throughout all this. I did know that when, and here we need a little bit more background, uh, slavery, uh, sorry, the slave trade in the British Empire was uh, suppressed from 1807 onwards. But slavery itself wasn't ended until after 1833. So... Um, what we're looking at now in this period, because South Australia settled at the end of 1836, we're in the period in which the slave trade has been over, but the, the actual practice of slavery, people were still using the chattel slaves in places like Honduras to get whatever product that, that, that they were going to sell. So I also knew that the British government... When they abolished the uh, chattel slavery throughout the empire, what they did was to compensate the slave owners, not the slaves, the poor slaves. I mean, Isn't that amazing? That, no. uh, it's. I mean, yeah, I know, we see it all the time. It's like the uh, big multinationals that uh, are mining companies, uh, de- de- you know, destroying the environment have yeah. to be compensated for not destroying the environment. Well, in this case, and it is so important to understand this, the chattel slaves were private property. Yeah, that's And exactly under capitalism, right. you cannot take private property, productive property, away from people and not compensate them. Ugh. And so it could only happen if you, if you compensated them. Now, there are these group of, of people in the University College in London who went to the government um, archives and got a list of all the people who were compensated and how much they got. Uh. And they turned it into a website. You can go online easily and find it. And so you can find out who are the... Uh... Who were the recipients. And <laughs> yeah, from that, you right. can work out who owned slaves. Yes. The Gladstones, for example, the Prime Minister's family, Yes. they got £100,000 in compensation. And that was a long time ago as well. So. Well, yeah, that was the mid of the 1830s. It's difficult to make a cross-comparison. I wouldn't try to do that. No, but it is the pot of money that is the yeah. foundation for people's fortunes and also why they wield such power within the society. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you think of all the money they'd made out of the trade before this. 
You know, so they're already sitting on a pot of money. I mean, the way to think about it, I think, the best cross-comparison is the $20 million they paid was the equivalent of half the national budget. Isn't that amazing? Of England, of England, yeah. yeah. Now, at the same time, an agricultural labourer was earning about seven shillings a week. You know, it gets at the <laughs> other end of the scale. Um, and that's why the toll problematas end up out here, because they resist another cut in their wages. But that's another story. Now, so I think to myself, uh, I find this website, and it's a beautiful website to use. Not all of them are, but this one is just a dream. And there's a bit you put in people's names, and you press the button, and if they're there, they come up. And I thought, oh, well, I've, I've never won any money in the lottery, but why don't I put in George Fife Angus and see what happens? Wow. I almost fell off my chair. £6,345 in compensation. Now, what is amazing about that, that Angus had been written about uphill and down dale. There were biographies of him because he was praised as this great evangelical Christian and, you know, all of that stuff. And no one had tumbled to the fact previously that he was a slave owner and the family fortune had not just been based on the slave industries, but on owning them, owning them themselves, and so he was a man of his age. He was well, yeah. I mean, not everybody was doing this. Of course, there were plenty of people who opposed the trade. Um, but and, but he he saw himself as a businessman, and he took the opportunities. Well, he saw. Well, it's this interesting combination of somebody who doubtless saw himself as doing God's work, and God's work included making a lot of money. Yeah, and, and subjugating up. a whole range of other people and stealing their natural resources. You know, I mean, back to what he does when he gets here, because he can't bring chattel slaves into Australia. He can't do that. He doesn't even think of that. What he does do, he goes to Germany, finds a lot of people who are being oppressed there because of their peculiar religious beliefs. They belong to a small sect. Uh, and they were being persecuted by the government. And he says, well, if I pay for you to come out to Australia, will you work for me for 21 years and pay back the fee, and I'll settle you on some land I've got? Bonded, bonded. Well, yeah, bonded labour. And 21 so, years? My it's God. a long time. Well, it's a... But About the time being, average mortgage. Well, no, seven years would have been, or three or seven was average at the time. But being these good Lutherans... They didn't break away. They could have done that. Because they got here and said, you know, well, we're mm. here. We've got this. You can just go away now because mm. that's what other people did. But no, they were good Christians themselves, real Christians, and they given well, their word and they were going to keep it. But, of course, they are the basis for those Lutheran communities throughout the Barossa Valley. So that's what he went on to do when he got here. But then the other question arises. You know, I thought, I've never thought about this. Where did the money come from? Because if the twenty million is the equivalent of half of the budget, the British government is not going to be able to raise that within twelve months. You know, you can't just suddenly go and you know, get another fifty percent. So what you're pointing out is that in the past, when people were colonising, they were doing it uh, based on the crowns. Uh, it's almost like a bank covering the debt <laughs> but it's it's the crown it, they're doing it in the crown's interest but yeah. when they came to somewhere like south australia and yeah. it was a private 
uh, company effect, yep. effectively, they're, they're now creating something separate from the auspices of the Crown, aren't they? Yeah, well, indeed, they were yeah. accused of being Republicans, <laughs> uh, which simply meant that they hadn't got a charter from the Crown to come out here. They eventually sorted all that out. But, um, but to, to compensate all the slave owners, the, the government needed to raise £20 million. And so the way that it did this is the way it had financed all of the wars in the 18th century and the wars against um, uh, uh, the Napoleonic France. Yeah, because um, as you pointed out in your paper, there had been what they called a world war for 23 years. Well, yeah, there'd been a world war then. And really, the world wow. war had been going on since 1694. How bizarre. Uh, you know, and it, you know, they, they, you know, they have a few years off, and then they start again. And it was a world war because they fought for control of the West Indies for very good reasons. You know, because that was where the wealth was coming from. Um, but I thought, well, where did the money come from? Well, <laughs> they went to the bond market, as they did always. That's how they, that's how they paid for the war. And the big banker dealers, who they went to to raise the money for them, as they do today. People say, you know, the government wants this. And so is that how they bought the... Uh, the bankers bought, bought England? Well, they owned... You know, I mean, it kind of grows... I mean, this is another big story. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Bank of England, strangely enough, is set up in 1694 just as, the, as that big war starts because they've got to get the money. And that's what the Bank of England is first established for as a private company. Mm. Uh, it isn't part of the government. No, that's uh, right. But they go into the market and they raise money for them. And this is what happens. And so they went and the people who were raising money in the 1830s for them were Nathan Rothschild and his in-law, Moses Montefiore. Ah, oh, the now, famous Moses Montefiore, yes. Well, the, the Montefiores are involved in the settlement of South Australia. Yeah. And, and kindly for, for, for anyone doing historical research, Sir Moses kept a diary. Um, and I have to say um, that I, I chased up the diary and I looked at what he was writing in his diary at the time that he was helping the government to raise this 20 million. And this is the entry. He goes to visit the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He comes home on the 7th of May, 1835, and he writes down, I'd called it Downing Street. I was immediately admitted and received by the Chancellor in the most friendly manner. You know, he turned up at 20 million quid, you know. So he's not going to be shown the door, He's not going to be shown, the door, be shown the door, yeah. No, most friendly manner. You've got to be I, happy with that, hey? And then he says, I thanked him for having, at my request, appointed Jacob Montefiore, one of his nephews, as one of Her Majesty's commissioners for the colonisation of South Australia. The Chancellor spoke of the many new schemes afloat of companies of small capital and said... He would always be glad to see me. Uh, I just thought this is too wonderful. <laughs> you, know, you, you couldn't script it, could you? He's you know? the guy. He's the guy that uh, um, laid out that whole principle that uh, being rich was your right and being poor was your lot. 
Yeah, well, I mean, he does many, many things. He, I, mean, yeah. he could, I mean, he's quite clever. You know. but, but he also bet against the English. Uh, he made a bet against the English uh, during the uh, uh, one of the major wars, and that's how he made a huge bundle. Well, so do the Rothschilds. I mean, yeah, the Rothschilds yeah, yeah. turned up as cotton merchants. But do you know how he died? This I thought this was so fitting. He died from a um, some sort of... Uh, uh, there was an infection in his sinus that turned into a brain um, oh, deterioration, yeah. and he died. Yeah, from a cold, well, basically. Anyway, so this is where the money comes from, and the Montefiores, and there are a couple of place names in South Australia called after Jacob and Joseph, these two nephews who eventually turn up in South Australia. Um, not immediately, but they turn up there for a while. So again, we have this cross connection across to the Anguses. Now, the other thing to say about this in terms of the empire is, okay, you get rid of the chattel slaves, but someone's still got to do the work for you. So what do they do? They start what has been called a new system of slavery. And the new system of slavery is you take Indian coolies, as they were called, and ship them around the empire. So you take the Indians and you send them to Fiji, you send them to the West Indies. To uh, Africa? You send them to South Africa, which is why Gandhi is there. Uh, the new system of slavery, over the next 90 years, because it doesn't stop until the early 1920s, this new system of slavery, uh, they are bonded labourers. Now, they're bonded for two years on paper, but they're supposed to have their fares paid back, um, this is the kind of but story they don't that Kevin them, would love. And they don't send them, they don't pay for their fare back. Funny that. Oi. And so they have to stay on. And the other thing that happens to them is when they get there, they, be, you know, they aren't paid in cash. They're paid in kind. They have to buy things at the local shop, which is owned by their employer. And they run up debt. So they God, have to keep so working. so wicked, aren't they? You know, and it just keeps going. Oh, that's so wicked. Um... And so this, it's interesting. And then, of course, I suppose if a person uh, bucks up about it, the police are quite handy to uh, do the employer's favour. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no real doubt about that at all as to what happens over there. I mean, some of these places depend where you were sent to. If you're on an island, of course, and this was true for the slaves, uh, the only way out really was to rise in rebellion, and that happened. Uh, they took over, the French islands were taken over and there were you know, uprisings in Haiti and these places. If you were on the mainland in Honduras or Belize or, or somewhere around there, you could just go bush and that happened as well. Mm. People would just, you know, if they could, they would slip away and go up into the mountains and join up with the Indians because um, <laughs> the other thing that happened was some of the local Indians were enslaved to work as well. Um, but... So the whole system of chattel slavery throughout the British Empire, but as I mentioned before, Angus brings these um, Germans to work for him, not on a two-year bond, but on a 21-year bond. However, when the company arrives, they turn up with 400 labourers, and they are bonded labourers as well. They have to repay their fare over working for this, you know, for a, 
for a certain period of time. This becomes known, the whole system becomes known as the Wakefield scheme, um, whereby the scheme was that you, you paid people's money to come to Australia, or you paid their fare to come here, and they worked for you for seven years. And in that seven years, they could save up enough money to put a deposit on a bit of land for themselves. And this is how you had self-funded um, forms of immigration. Now, the whole thing fell apart. Um, there's, in fact, <laughs> Chapter 33 in Volume 1 of Capital is about this. The last chapter in Volume 1 is, 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 is about the colonisation of Australia. Uh, people often don't know that. But it's a wonderful chapter. It's only about 12 pages. I recommend it to everybody uh, to go and have a look. So we get not just the convict labour, which is what's going on in the eastern colonies, um, we also get these bonded labourers who come out to South Australia. Uh, there are free settlers as well who are paying their way. And, of course, Angus and the Montefiores are not the only people who settle South Australia on the basis of money that's come out of the slave trade. Uh, quite a number, well, I say quite a number, uh, the ones I've been able to find of people who settle there and set up big properties uh, in South Australia had also been compensated. Um, it's interesting... One of the other things that happens, and I've got a friend here who's a professor of politics, she's retired, she did a bit of family history. She's discovered (laughs) that she's got a Scottish background. She is, you know, I mean, this doesn't make any scientific sense, but to put it in a way which you can immediately understand, she is a 4% African descent. Because somewhere a couple of hundred years back, one of her forebears fathered a child to one of the black slaves. But the Scots, bless their little socks, they didn't abandon these kids. They took them back to Scotland and educated them, and then they gave them money and sent them out to settle Australia. Ah, interesting. I mean, it, you know, so there are, there are a number oh, of God, what we call... interesting pieces. These, you know, uh, there's, you know, half African, half Scots kids, and the families then, you know, I mean, as there's no more African blood, you know, and, well, no more African genes going in, you know, it, so it gets down to the point where she says, you know, you know, I'm probably about 4% of African descent. So you get some of this. One of the big settlers uh, in South Australia um, was, was um, well, well, he, well, in these, you know, terms of being half and half, um, he's, he's, um, he, um, his father was a Scot and his mother was an African. Um, but he sent out he was a thousand pound as well. Um, so there are quite a number of them. I reckon that if you went through the Australian Dictionary of Biography, which is now online, and you put in key words like planter, West Indies, Honduras, Barbados, and whenever they came up, you ran those names through the University College London list of people who were compensated you would come up with even more names right across Australia. And people have begun to do that. We Uh, have to finish. We have to finish. We're running out of time. Anyway, this will go up online. um, Yes. And anyone who wants to track it down in the footnotes. But I must say, I was was just overwhelmed by... As I said, I almost fell off my chair when I found Angus's name among the slave owners. So who knows what more we can find. Thanks very much, Humphrey. Good luck with the rest of your research. Bye-bye.
That's really, that's like picking off a sore, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that could have been the whole radio show. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, we've just been talking to Humphrey McQueen, and uh, before that, we uh, heard from the women who uh, are on the uh, roundabout at Hillsville uh, for refugee rights. That's exactly right. We went to Parliament Steps. Uh, where people are um, doing a vigil, 10-day vigil leading up to the election uh, for public housing, hoping that you'll go down there and uh, join them for a little while. And make more of an election issue. That's exactly right. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with Exit Door uh, by Eva Popu. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.